What is Decision Tech by Fidelity? It's technology that can help you find a stock based on what's trending or an investing goal. It's real-time insights and information delivered in your own customized view of the market. It's smarter trading technology for smarter trading decisions. And it's only from Fidelity. Open an account today at fidelity.com trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. If you want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job, not just entertain, but educate, teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Maybe, just maybe, this market's going into Bob Dylan mode. Maybe the slow ones now will later be fast and the order is rapidly fading because the times, they are changing. Uh, why do I say that? Well, some of it's the average is Dow gaining 142 points. It's going to be climbing 0.22%. NASDAQ advancing 0.15%. But mostly it's about the banks. Yeah, the banks. When you look at this incredible nine-day run in the financial stocks, there's really only one way to interpret it. The banks are leading this market's charge out of the bear den abyss. Yes, the banks are the leaders. What else can you say about Goldman Sachs, which just rocketed up 17 points on a sharply better expected quarter? One day, 17 points. No takeover. Earnings. How else can you fathom today's astounding 7% run in the stock of Bank of America? Want some truly superior numbers. These moves today come on top of the huge reversals in J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, which both saw their stocks ultimately rally after some initial plummeting on their headline reports. Overall, the big banks are painting a stunning picture. House of pleasure. Now, I don't want to pin everything on these earnings. These stocks got outrageously oversold in the severe, albeit short-lived, fourth-quarter bear market. Citigroup, these are pretty amazing numbers. It plunged from $74 last September to $48 at its lows. Tell me that's not a bear market. Now it's rebounded to $62, up from $56 just since it reported this week. J.P. Morgan fell from $119 to $91. Now it's back to $102. It was down 3 bucks before the market started. Started trading and it rallied. Bank of America, its stock plummeted from $31 at the end of September down to around $22 at its December lows. After today's terrific rally, Bank of America is back up to $28. Best for last, Goldman Sachs was at $234 at its highs in November. The stock then crashed to $151. Even after today's electrifying rebound, Goldman's still well off its highs, trading at $197. So what's going on here? Investors, I think, have started to realize that the banks are literally, not figuratively, but literally making more money than ever. And they're doing so with less risk and fewer employees, as technology has replaced tons of white-collar jobs. That's not all. Bank of America, these are staggering, has 26 million active mobile banking users. Its consumer banking app has had 1.5 billion billion logins in the fourth quarter alone. 27% of all consumer sales are through digital. Meanwhile, Bank of America's voice digital assistant, Erica, has captured 4.8 million users one year. Something I really didn't believe was possible when we spoke to Michelle Moore, the head of their digital initiative, right here last May. I find that extraordinary, especially when you remember that digital customers are a heck of a lot more profitable for the bank than brick and mortar ones. And look, I mean, this is what's so, it's a virtuous circle. It's why they're so happy to oblige you with terrific online experience. 
They don't want to have to pay for real estate and tellers and, of course, paper processing costs. At first, I assumed that Bank of America would become the Millennials Bank, right? I mean, everyone's banking on this. I get it, right? But it's bigger than that. Everyone with an iPhone is a potential customer for their digital division. That's a large audience, right? As I see it, this is a growth company that's merely masquerading as a staid and boring bank. You heard it here first. I know no, you know, I know nobody else is thinking that way, but I'm telling you, that's the way you're going to start thinking as these next quarters roll out. Okay, how about a really hated company? How about Goldman Sachs? Okay, some of today's strength reflects what I've been saying for a while. The bank should never have been so low in the first place. Between the scandal of unfathomable proportions in Malaysia and the slowdown in trading, Goldman's shares sank to their cheapest level in history at least on a price journey's basis. At its lows, this thing was cheaper than copper companies and steel mills. It's still even, in some, some, some ways, uh, cheaper than a bunch of stocks that I like, no-name stocks that I can't believe, you know, as a Goldman Sachs alumnus. I mean, I, I've got to tell you, this has been a very painful period. Uh, it, I always think how the mighty, or at least the mighty stock, has fallen. It's Goldman Sachs. But I keep telling you, it was too cheap. I stuck with that. That's why we own it for uh, Goldman from my Chapel Trust. You can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. And today, finally, at last, we were vindicated. Not that we're making any money on it, but at least it came back to life. When this thing was in the 160s, I was crying, man. It was like when, you, when Alshon didn't get the pass from... After the conference call, I now feel like the Malaysia scandal is fathomable. Management addressed it as thoroughly as possible and as, as much as they can, given the Justice Department's involvement. It was for the first time. I found it sincere. I thought it made sense. I thought it was real. Meanwhile, the trading slowdown is no longer as relevant for Goldman. You know, 61% of its revenues come from fees, up from 48% in 2013. It's becoming more like a bank. Okay, I can hear you say it. Oh, that's great, Jim. Thanks for nothing. We can see all this on our screens. Tell us what's going to happen next. Listen, I wouldn't be talking all about these boring stocks if I thought they weren't done going higher. I bet these moves are just the beginning. Why? First, I just told you where these stocks came from, and even after the recent moves, the banks are still well below their highs. I gave you those highs. The group got obliterated when our impetuous Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell, started talking about the need for many more rate hikes. Now that plan is dead in the water, and the banks can rebound. What? Wait a second, you might be asking, weren't, weren't banks supposed to benefit from higher interest rates? That net interest margin wasn't that the chatter for years? Uh, don't they make more money off your deposits when the Fed tightens? Isn't that an interest margin the only thing investors care about? But it's a very funny uh, interview with Jamie Dimon where he, he jokes about that, actually. See, because it turns out the answer is no. The Fed was about to cause what's known as an inverted yield curve, where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates, and that's deadly for the banks. They would have to pay you more for your deposits while charging you less for loans. So no rate hikes, no problem. Second, the bank stocks are now priced at absurd levels versus the billions and billions and billions of dollars they're making in recurring revenues. I cannot believe the staggering amount of money they make. And that's just by turning the lights on each day, not to mention all the advisory fees they get for investment banking and insanely lucrative business. When you see tons of mergers and acquisitions, you know the investment bankers are making a fortune. Finally, in the case of Goldman Sachs, you now have management's assurance that the Malaysian scandal can and will be put behind them without that much liability or even more, rep- uh, I thought this was really important, reputational risk. Do you know that business in Asia showed no fall-off whatsoever other than in Malaysia itself? I don't know. I was convinced. I listened to it a couple of times. I think they're going to be okay on Malaysia. I know it's bad. It's embarrassing. It's awful. But I think they're going to be okay. 
Now, there are many ways to gauge a bank's stock valuation, but my favorite is tangible book value, TBV. How much money you'd have if you closed the company and liquidated everything right here, right now. Goldman's tangible book value is $196 per share, just a buck below where the stock is currently trading, and that is absurd. They're making a fortune off that book value, yet they're almost getting no credit for it whatsoever. Frankly, we haven't seen a moment like this where the banks are making far more money than people believe since we came out of the S&L crisis in the early 90s, and I was trading the banks like a whamma jamma. Back then, many investors sold these stocks after what seemed like big moves off the bottom, only to realize not long after that new buyers were flocking to the group after months and months of underperformance because they recognized that something fundamentally had changed. The banks had gotten better. The bank stocks ultimately soared to new heights, and I wouldn't be surprised if we got a similar scenario this time. And look, the financials make up about 20% of the S&P 500. You know, this hasn't been a leadership group for ages and ages, but when the banks get their mojo back, they can be responsible for some remarkable gains across the market, especially if these companies continue to buy back stocks and rapidly raise their dividends, which they will. So the bottom line, yes, it is not too late to buy the banks. There'll be plenty of people who say, finally, I'm back to even, time to go. I'm urging you to think the other way. There are a lot of investors who look at these runs and decide, you know what? They want in. And honestly, I think they're making the right call, not the exiters. Although ideally, of course, you got to get in ahead of these latecomers. Jake in New York. Jake. Hey, how are you, Jim? Jake, it couldn't be better. How are you? Good, good. Same over here. Thank you. I just had a quick question for you about Snapchat. So, uh, obviously, sudden management changes, never a good thing. But uh, Snapchat could probably benefit from the back set of eyes. So, I'm looking into average a little lower. Do you think this is a nice bottom? I think it's too early to buy Snap. Uh, Second CFO leaves. Guy left, by the way, he had a huge number of regis- of, uh, of stock units that he, he chose to walk away from. That was one of the most discouraging things I could possibly see. That was amazing. No one talks about that. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. Tom in Kentucky, please, Tom. Booyah, Jim. Yo, yo. Paris, Kentucky, Wildcat country. Oh, man, great, great. What's up? Forever grateful for your guiding me to self-control oh. on trading and investing. Thank you. I'm 76. I have a substantial Con Ed holding in my IRA. In light of the PG&E bankruptcy due to the catastrophe, mm-hmm. should I reevaluate my Con Ed holdings? Jeez, I've got to tell you, Tom, I, I think the world of Con Ed, I think that they're an amazingly well-run company. And uh, I think that PG&E was an incredibly poorly run company. And they had suspended their dividend. I mean, I really didn't get what the hell the analysts were up, their preferred dividend, what the analysts were thinking recommending that stock. Con Ed's a whole nother story and a positive one. Guys, the times, they are changing. This market's coloration is starting to switch. It's not too late to do some buying in the bank stocks. Well, my money tonight, after completing a whoop, whoop, eight interviews in two days last week, I can't say I blame you if you missed one or two. Tonight, I'm revealing the most surprising discussion I had. Then the retail landscape may be tough terrain, but tonight, I'm pointing out three winners in the space to see if they can continue their raid. And who keeps an eye on the wireless world while you're watching Netflix? I'll reveal the name when I sit down with the CEO, and it is a whopping good story. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. 
Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Very busy week out in San Francisco for the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference last week with eight interviews on just Monday and Tuesday alone. We learned so much from the executives I spoke with. It. Well, I, I, I want to make sure that you digested the best parts, especially since they ended up being spread across Squawk Box, Squawk Alley. And here, the most surprising revelation, GlaxoSmithKline, the huge British pharmaceutical company with a stock that's been dead money for years at best. I mean, this thing's been really a bond market equivalent with that monster 5% yield, but now it's suddenly become a contender. This one really hadn't been on my radar screen at all. Uh, so you better believe I was shocked when I spoke to CEO Emma Walmsley. That interview aired on Squawk Alley on Tuesday, and she laid out what was arguably, I think, the most compelling story I heard at the whole J.P. Morgan conference. And boy, did I ever not expect that. Walmsley took over CEO of Glaxo in 2017. She spent a long time evaluating various different strategic options that might help her unlock value of this stodgy company. Now, though, she's decided on her plan, and she's ready to share it with the rest of the world, and I think it's a game changer. Which is why tonight I'm going to quickly recap what Walmsley told us and explain just why it is so positive, because I, I want you to buy it. First, though, you need a little background on GlaxoSmithKline. This is the ultimate stodgy, old-fashioned, big pharma company. Glaxo has three businesses. They make drugs, they make vaccines, and they make consumer health care uh, products. Under Walmsley's predecessor, Andrew Whitty, the company decided to focus on its consumer division, the least proprietary, least exciting, least valuable part of the enterprise, if you ask me. Whitty wanted less exposure to the pharmaceutical business and more exposure to the over-the-counter medicine business. In fact, he did a $20 billion deal with Novartis that involved swapping his anti-cancer portfolio for Novartis's vaccine division while also combining their consumer businesses under a joint venture controlled by Glaxo. To Whitty, the drug business was just too risky. You spend fortunes developing new medicines uh, medic- that then live or die based on the approval process, whereas vaccines and over-the-counter drugs are much more predictable. He wanted Glaxo to be slow and steady, and he got his wish, as the stock spent years doing next to nothing. Now, when Wobbson was named as, as Witty's successor, it seemed like Glaxo might have been just doubling down on the same strategy. Why not? Let me think about it. Wobbson had been the head of the, of the company's consumer division. Before that, she spent most of her career at L'Oreal. She has the perfect resume to run a consumer packaged goods company. But instead, she took her time figuring out the best way forward and then revealed a bold new vision. Wamsley doesn't want to double down on consumer business at all. She wants to split it off into a separate company. A month ago, we learned that Glaxo is merging its consumer division with Pfizer's in a joint venture that they plan to spin off in three years' time. It's actually going to be pretty terrific if you like that business. It's going to create a dominant player, number one and number two, in each category in the -the over-the-counter space. It really will be an incredible business. And remember, uh, it's got great brands. You know them. You know them all. It's Advil, uh, Robitussin, Sensodyne, Panadol, Theraflu, along with all sorts of supplements. But the biggest positive is what it means for Glaxo's pharmaceutical division. I can't tell you better than Wamsley can. Take a listen. What's great about this deal, Jim, is not just what it does for our consumer business. It's the uh, value it also creates for our pharma business, our number one priority, because we get those extra cash flows over the next few years as we invest in our pipeline of of new drugs, including those from the latest acquisition we announced at Tesoro also in, uh, in December. But also then at the point of separation, Uh, of these two companies where we have two 
focus companies, uh, one uh, a world leader in consumer healthcare and one in vaccines uh, and pharma focused on immunology, but with the right kind of capital structures, the right debt levels to be for both of them to invest in their future growth and returns to shareholders. <laughs> Holy cow, I think this is a terrific way for Glaxo to unlock value. You know what it reminds me of? When Eli Lilly, you know one of my real favorites, spun off its animal health business as Elanco. It was a move that made a lot of money for Elanco, but really made a lot of money for Lilly shareholders. Best of all, though, she wants to take the proceeds and invest them in developing new drugs. Fast-growing business. When Wamsley took over, Glaxo's pharma division had been written off and left for dead by Wall Street. Her appointment was supposed to be the final nail in its coffin. In reality, though, Wamsley's working to bring it back from the dead. At the beginning of December, Glaxo announced it was buying Tesaro. It's a biotech with a terrific ovarian cancer drug for $5.1 billion. Here's how she pitched it to me. Today, uh, the PARP class um, is prescribed less in the U.S. than in some other markets, where it's about two-thirds, uh, the second-line uh, uh, treatment. In the U.S., it's more like 35%. But the big opportunity we have is, is about going into first-line treatment. And here, the interesting thing is, and again, we have a study that's reading out uh, later on uh, this year, Right now, it's prescribed for 15% of uh, ovarian cancer patients, women with the BRCA gene, which right. you may have heard of, uh, yes. obviously people have heard of with breast cancer. We have a study that is going to be reading out for potentially three times as many women. Wow, I think that's a great story too. I wanted to play all these bites because I, I, I find her enthusiasm about oncology to be infectious. Wamsley well, even made the sleepy vaccine business seem like much more of a growth story. Once more, into the breach, listen to her talk about the company's new shingles vaccine. We've been absolutely delighted with that launch. Uh, this has been one of the strongest biotech launches in the last decade. In our first full year, 700 to 750 million pounds worth of sales. One in three of us uh, on this set is going to suffer from shingles, very painful. And this has got a 95% efficacy rate, tremendous start, great prospects for growth uh, over the next few years. You know, when you put it all together, I think it's pretty clear that Emma Walmsley has a vision to transform GlaxoSmithKline in a very positive way. She's made a series of moves to reinforce the company's pharma business, especially when it comes to cancer drugs, while also preparing to merge the consumer division with Pfizer's and then spin it off three years down the road after it's really ready. Given that Glaxo stock sells for just 13 times earnings, given the 5% dividend yield, I'm calling it a screaming buy here. Yeah, right at these levels. Walmsley's incredibly perceptive about the current landscape, so it's a shame that her stock seems to be getting at loss in the pharma shuffle and not a lot of respect. The bottom line, Fraser's GlaxoSmithKline has been a bond market equivalent stock with no real catalyst. Thanks to the bold leadership of the company's new CEO, Emma Walmsley, whom I hope you enjoyed listening to, all that's about to change. And you know what? I think it's a huge change, and it's a huge change for the better. Let's go to James in Connecticut. James. Jim, it's James from Connecticut. Thanks for taking my call, even though I'm a New Orleans fan. I'm an action alert member. I really wish I had joined earlier. Oh, thank My question, Johnson & Johnson, am I in a battleground stock? Should I just sell with a very small profit? Okay, James is, first of all, James, thank you for being a member of the club. We're going to talk about J&J in tomorrow's call at 1130 for the com club. You know, it's a legitimate question. Is it a battleground? After the talc news, uh, I think people think it is. I've got to tell you, Alex Gorsky's the CEO, and the only battleground there is how we can keep him be CEO as long as possible. I think he's terrific. I want you to hold on to it, James. We're going to ride this one out, and we're going to, I think we're going to do well with it. Let's go to Brian in New York. Brian. 
Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Bryla two. Booyah. This is Bryla two for calling from the fishing capital of the world, Montauk, Long Island. <laughs> The only thing that. I enjoy more than watching your show is your energetic personality that goes with it. Ah, uh, you're a good man. Thank you. <laughs> My question pertains to Ameren Corporation, stock symbol AMRN. I purchased this stock in September when it went from $3 to $12 in one day. Since that time, it has been a real roller coaster ride going up to $23 and back down to $12 due to concerns about mineral oil being used for a placebo in their five-year research study. A recent mm-hmm. rumor of a takeover by Pfizer sent it up to $18. What is your opinion on investing in this? You know, stock? we were against it for a long time. Then they actually had a kind of comeback. They did some good things. Uh, look, I don't want to recommend it as a takeover target. I have no idea what Pfizer's going to do. Uh, the last outlook was just okay, but I think it's a decent spec, frankly. And that's what we've been saying about that one. All right, get ready for the transformation of what could be the century when it comes to pharma. GlaxoSmithKline at last, and those of us from Philadelphia remember SmithKline in French. I think it's finally happening. I think there's a comeback under Emma Wamsley. All right, much more Mad Money ahead. Some retail players have been showing some signs of life. Which stock should you try to own? Not everyone, believe me. Don't make a move before hearing my take. Then it's an under-the-radar way to play the pop culture phenomenon known as Fortnite. I'll reveal the company making sure the game's 80 million users are having a smooth experience. And what's Celgene's $74 billion acquisition of... What is Decision Tech by Fidelity? It's technology that can help you find a stock based on what's trending or an investing goal. It's real-time insights and information delivered in your own customized view of the market. It's smarter trading technology for smarter trading decisions. And it's only from Fidelity. Open an account today at fidelity.com trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Bristol Myers signals for the rest of the market. You don't want to miss this. Stay with Kramer. Last night, I pointed out that the retail landscape has become very complicated. Certain parts of the industry, like the department stores, oh, man, are they struggling. What is the weak same-store sales that we just got from Macy's last week and Nordstrom today? But other companies in different areas are doing really, really well. So tonight, I want to highlight three particular retail winners to show you that they've been working and why they've been working and figure out, of course, if they can keep working. Let's start with Lululemon, the yoga-inspired apparel chain that just pre-announced some Really great numbers on Monday. The thing about Lulu is that even though it's the best breed player in the athleisure space with phenomenal management, that didn't prevent the stock from getting gutted during the hideous fourth quarter sell-off. From its peak on October 1st to its lows on Christmas Eve, this stock plunged from 164 down to 112. That's bear market action, people. Since then, the stock has caught fire, but Lulu is still down substantially from its highs, trading $142 as of today. Now, what makes this even crazier is the fact that Lulu reported in early December, and the results were excellent. The company delivered a nice top and bottom line beat with solid same-store sales, up 6% year over year. But the stock got clobbered. It plunged 13% in a single session. Why? The guidance. See, management's guidance for the next quarter was merely in line, not dramatically better than expected. And during a bear market, well, I've got, like we had at the end of the quarter, that's not good enough. When everybody's freaking out about a Fed-induced economic slowdown, investors tend to view everything through the most negative possible prism. And for Lulu, that meant interpreting their forecast as a sign that the story had somehow gone off the rails. Now, immediately after the stock got slammed, a bunch of analysts, brave ones, came out and pounded the table telling people to buy it because Lulu was doing just fine. Matt Boss from J.P. Morgan. 
perhaps the best retail analyst on Wall Street, added Lulu to his firm's best ideas list that same day, and for good reason. The same store sales growth continued to be terrific. The company was having a lot of success entering in new product categories, and there might even be some uh, gross margin upside. Once the broader stock market bottomed and the panic started to recede, Lulu began to rebound. It sure didn't hurt when... Fed Chief Jay Powell indicated that he might be willing to hold off on more rate hikes for the moment. Suddenly, the macro worries that had hammered the stock were gone. But the best news came on Monday when Lululemon presented at that big ICR conference in Orlando. The company substantially raised its forecast for the fourth quarter. Substantially. Remember, the stock got slammed in December because the guidance was too tepid. They originally predicted same-store sales growth in the high single digits, the low double digits. Now they're talking about same-store sales in the high teens. I don't know many. Really, it's hard to find retailers better than that. And that's thanks to higher traffic, both online, where they are amazing, and in stores. It's incredible, especially when you consider that Lululemon is up against some very tough comparisons. According to J.P. Morgan's boss, who was there, the company called out strength in women's pants, men's outwear, outerwear, and accessories. Lulu's e-commerce business is absolutely on fire. And above all else, Lululemon remains a fabulous growth story. The company's putting up new stores at a rapid pace, and now they're doubling down on the international expansion. Don't forget, I've been saying over and over again, it's an experiential place to visit. And I reiterate that when they talk about mindfulness, they actually mean it. So what do we make of Lululemon here? Frankly, the stock never should have been down so much in the first place because this narrative never really changed the whole time. I've liked this stock for ages. And even though it's run dramatically over the last few weeks, I think it's a buyer. I know 27 times next year's earnings estimates doesn't matter. Remember, we like growth in Kramerica. This one's got growth. Next up, more complicated, Yeti. Yes, Yeti Holdings, the maker of high-performance outdoor gear, especially coolers. I have one and drinkware. Think tumblers, bottles, mugs, all stuff you can take with you when you go camping or glamping, as my daughter calls it. Yeti's a real fast grower that had the misfortune of coming public during, wow, near the end of October. Just about the worst possible time for an IPO. Naturally, the stock got slammed right out of the gate. Now, I highlighted Yeti roughly two months ago on November 19th, telling you that while the company was far from perfect, I thought the stock was attractive at 17 bucks and change. So I gave you my blessing to buy it, but only for speculation. Needless to say, I got it wrong. I spoke too soon. Yeti's stock continued to get clobbered. When the company reported its first quarter out of the gate at the end of November, it delivered a solid top and bottom line beat with robust guidance for the full year. The analyst community went gaga for these numbers, but the market disagreed. And after initially opening positive, where I was very excited, Yeti then ended up selling off 16% the very same day. It was a very surprising reaction. I still don't really know what to make of it. Except perhaps that some traders were expecting a massive blowout, maybe. They didn't get it. By the time the market bottomed around Christmas, Yeti was trading at $12.40, down from $21.45 where it opened following that third quarter announcement, with most of that decline coming on no real news whatsoever. So as soon as the stock market stabilized, Yeti snapped right back. Just like Lululemon, the company went on to pre-announce some fantastic numbers at the ICR conference earlier this week. Their sales growth is actually accelerating thanks to the strength of their booming direct-to-consumer business. The stock popped from $16.72 to $18.14 on Monday. And they had a little pullback today at $17.50. What can I say? I like Yeti a lot here, but we obviously don't have the best track record with this one. Still, with the stock trading at less than 15 times next year's earnings estimates, I think this is a steal. Yeti has 22% sales growth, for heaven's sake. The valuation for Yeti is crazy. Finally, speaking of crazy, there's Crocs. The maker of those weird-looking but incredibly comfortable shoes that made a major comeback last year. 
Generation X, Y, Z, they all love these things, whatever that is. You know, you're getting old when Crocs are considered retro chic, but that's the new reality. Yet this brand is now beloved by teenagers. What are they? They put them on when they play Fortnite? Hey, let's play some Fortnite, put on our Crocs. I mean, in November, I pointed out the stock had been roaring. But you know what? I held off recommending it because I thought it was too risky to bet on any kind of fad driven by teens, especially when the whole stock market seemed to be melting down. So, of course, Crocs is the one stock that managed to keep chugging higher throughout the downturn. It was at $25 when I said I was, it was too risky for me. Now it's at 30 Now, Crocs also pre-announced on Monday, and while the fourth quarter numbers were amazing, the company's forecast for the current quarter was merely good, not great. Stock dropped about a dollar on the news. My view, look, I have been too cautious on Crocs, but sooner or later this fad is going to run out of juice. While I don't know when that will happen, I do know that Crocs sells for 24 times next year's earnings, and that's too expensive for a company that's only expecting mid-single-digit growth this year. Remember what I said about Lulu, similar multiple, but growing much faster, bottom line. The department stores may be in rough shape here. But that's just because people are buying stuff online or from stores that are much more fun to shop at. We know Lululemon, Yeti Holdings, and Crocs have all been doing very well. I love Lulu. I like Yeti. Crocs, it's run too much for me to be comfortable. Let's speak to Victoria in California. Victoria. Hi, Jim. I watch your show every day. There's no one like you. I think you're great. Thank you so much, Victoria. Thank you. Um, I'm really heavily invested in UPS, but they're not showing the gains I thought they would at this point, considering the market. I know their earnings report is coming out in two weeks, and they're coming off a strong holiday season. Could you tell me what to expect and how the tariffs in China might be affecting the stock moving forward? Uh, well, I'd like to see it make the gains it was showing a couple months ago. Well, look, I've got to tell you something, Victoria. This one is a great puzzle. Why? Because I, me, like many other people, we love UPS. We love our UPS sales uh, person. We love our UPS relationship. It yields 3.75%. I would actually buy some ahead. And then if it drops, you get it at 4% yield, I would buy more. Because this company is going to straighten itself out. And when it does, it's going to go much higher. Look, the retail landscape has become very complicated. There are still stocks, though, that are working. And I love Lulu, okay? I like Yeti. Crocs has run too much for me. Hey, much more mad money, including my exclusive with a company that works with the likes of Lego, Bleacher Report, and even CNBC. I'll reveal it just then. Then, how do you determine if stocks are too cheap? I'll tell you which companies could offer clues. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. As this market continues to work its way higher, what do we do with the cloud stocks? Now, this whole group just got obliterated during the big fourth quarter collapse, in part because the fast-growing cloud names had run up dramatically, making them ideal candidates for profit-taking. However, there's also kind of a widespread fear that we might be entering a cloud slowdown. That's a fear that was quickly put to rest, though, the moment these companies started reporting. That's why the cloud stocks have rebounded so hard off the bottom. But can they keep climbing as 2019 continues? I want you to consider the case of New Relic. The cloud-based software analytics company is one of our cloud princes. It specializes in application performance monitoring. They call it APM. Basically, New Relic helps clients keep track of what their business software is doing in real time and how the customers are interacting with it. Now, New Relic peaked at $114 last year. Then the stock plunged roughly $72 the day before Christmas. Even as the most recent quarter was darn good. Since then, the stock has rebounded to 90, but I think it still has a long way to go 
and I think it can regain its old highs. Don't take it from me, though. Let's talk with Lou Cerny. He's the founder and CEO of New Relic. Get a better sense of how this company's doing and where it's headed. Mr. Cerny, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, Lou. Great Have to a see seat. you, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Uh, but first it. of all, Lou, congratulations. That run to 100 was just, uh, look, totally deserving. The quarter, last quarter was really, really magnificent. And I think a lot of it's just great new clients. Perhaps the one that we're most interested in because we're gamers uh, is Epic Games, which I imagine has to be in real time perfect. Well, Epic Games is the company that created Fortnite. And if you have kids or if you're into games, every, this, this game has taken the world by storm. Right. It's the most popular game in the world. And if, if that game's not working, like millions of people know about right. it, right? And the company is affected. So they rely on New Relic's platform to see everything in real time, how that game is performing. It's a very complex piece of software that has to work flawlessly in real time. And we measure everything going on in that game so that the builders of Fortnite to keep it running for millions of people 24-7. Now, I think it's important people say to me, Jim, ask Lou, uh, Microsoft's got this kind of, they've got this kind of software no, and Amazon. And I, no, I, they. If they, you wouldn't have this level of retention if they had good software. No, no, no. Look, you know, there's there are different companies that do different things right. in and around observing the, the what's going on in the space, but we're the application-centric company. So what does that mean? It means when you're playing Fortnite, what you're doing is you're using software. We're measuring the software in real time. We do it in a cloud platform that integrates what's going on in the software with the infrastructure and with the end user experience, like the mobile app. Right. And so we see all that together and do it in one unified platform, and our customers love us for that. All right. Speaking of the mobile app, I know I saw you in the building, Lou. You work with yeah. CNBC. We've got... Uh, uh, I actually tell you, got I some very smart engineers. Yeah, yeah, they're they're brilliant. So uh, CNBC, you just launched an yeah. incredible new uh, Rev your app last uh, in the fall, and it's amazing. I use it a lot, and I love it. And again, this is an app that's you know, getting a lot of uptake. I was talking to the team; they said uh, customers love how they're uh, what the app is doing for them, and they want to use it more and more and more. That means they have to scale. So when more and more people are using that app, how are you able to handle the scale when people want to see the news in real time, want to see the stock quotes in real time? We provide them the visibility that gives them confidence to move faster and scale to this amazing demand that the CNBC app is, is generating. We had a huge uh, omni-channel holiday season. Uh, let me ask you two things. One, uh, tell me how your guys did. And then second, do you hear horror stories about other people who did not, and I, you don't have to name names, yeah. I'm, but who who were offline during the most crucial days of their existence? Well, the thing is, yeah, for for. For retail, obviously, so much of their business, particularly their, their web business, depends on a very small number of days, Black Friday, Cyber right. Monday, et cetera. And that's game time. That's moment of truth. That's when we're, you know, we're working our hardest to make sure our software is there to make sure our customers can see what's going on in real time. And, and our customers were thrilled with the performance and availability which, that, that they delivered, which turns into business results, Jim. Right. right. If your site is slower down on Cyber Monday, forget it. You're going to miss your quarter. And that's just like you may never recover from that because you also have a brand hit. So it's so vital. This is not nice to have software. Anybody who is competing on their software needs New Relic's platform in order to succeed. How much redundancy do you have at your company? You can't. We're a apps. massive cloud operation. Yeah. We're we're collecting millions of data points every second from mobile applications, from cloud infrastructure. Every time somebody's pressing a button to buy something, every time someone's watching this video on the CNBC app, we're measuring the health of that, and we do that at a massive scale. That's one of the things our customers love. Is like when Fortnite said, "Hey, we've got this huge app. It's the biggest in the world, and we want to monitor on New Relic." We're like. 
Great. Your biggest day is just another day for us. We collect so much data and we can do it for you. Now, uh, there's a moment in your last conference call, I know it's now back in November, uh, where someone asked you about IBM and your partnership. And you make a great point that it's going well, but you are Switzerland. You don't care who you work with. Absolutely. And this is so important to our customers. It's clear that we're entering a multi-cloud world. And obviously, you know, Microsoft's doing well. Amazon obviously doing very well. We had a great show at reInvent. Um, And there's some hybrid cloud as well. And so what what our customers are saying, no matter where my software is running, I want to see it all in one place. I'm sick of moving from one tool to another to see a complete picture. They turn to the new Relic platform to see it all in one place. That enables them to move fast with confidence. Are are any of the other sports, I mean, you do MLB.com, which I think is, and I said this when we introduced it on the show, is the best of the sports uh, coms. It really is amazing. Are any of the other guys uh, realizing that they got to have multidimensional and therefore they need you? Absolutely. There's, you know, um, uh, there's a major media company, for example, Cricket in in, in India. is like. Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people watching cricket, you know, so, so, um, and, and because there's these huge test matches and, and, you know, in real time, their new relic is making sure that's delivering. So it's not just local sports, it's global. Anywhere there is, are systems that need to perform well and scale well, those are systems that need new relic. Well, we know that there's just, it, there's Greenfield and, uh, Boy, low <laughs> site that went down this holiday season. Mm, yeah, Boy, it just—I don't know. You're right; they don't catch up, Lou. Yeah, it's it's tough, and and so you know what we say to our customers is building great software is not easy, right? But it is the it's the foundation upon which companies can build great competitive advantage. We want to partner with our customers to deliver amazing software that delights their customers and grows their business. Well, terrific, Lou is customer centric because we know that and truth are the things that make it so you get a Absolutely. big market cap and a good stock. That's Lou Sterling, he's founder and CEO of New Relic, N-E-W-R. Amazing that he's got all these great clients, and it's just starting. That money's back into the break. It is time! It's time for the Lightning Round. It's time for the Lightning Round. And then the Lightning Round is over. Are you ready? Skate Daddy! Time for the Lightning Round. I'm going to start with Joe in Washington. Joe! Yeah, that's it. Joe Baker. I love you, Kramer. I watch you every day. Can't beat that, can you? What's going on? I have Twitter. I bought it for $43. I have a lot of money in it. Do you think I should sell it? No, 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 Joe. No, it's too inexpensive. It's really like just a couple of social media companies that are working. They're doing a lot with big advertisers. I say, buy, buy, buy. Okay, Eve in Massachusetts. Eve. Hey, Jim. This is Eve. I'm a big fan of your book, Confessions of a Street Addict. Oh, man, tell off. What's up? Yeah, great. My question is about Deutsche Bank. I'm short, and I know it went up today, but I think it goes down with the uncertainty around Brexit and the money laundering scandal. Uh, I don't know. I mean, look, I don't recommend shorts, but I mean, the stock has come down. I don't like the stock. There's a lot of other banks I like. I think they probably need to raise capital. Uh, but uh, look, there's just far better bank stocks out there. Let's go to Don in Illinois. Don! Mr. Jim. Yes, Booyah. Don. Booyah. Calling from Elgin, Illinois, near to the pole-banging Chicago Bears. Yeah, you know, Cody. All right. Well, hey, nice person. What's up? I'm 68 years old, and I still like stocks. While I know that no appearing to be safe stock exists, GE, I have some AT&T, and I'm wondering if I should buy more or something else. You know, i got to tell you, I wouldn't buy more, Don. The cash flow is there for the dividend. It really has. I've inspected this pretty closely. I think you're fine. Just don't buy any more of it. I want to go to Patrick in Texas. Patrick. 
Hey, how you doing? Kramer, Patrick <laughs> Lopez, San Antonio. San Antonio. Love. Great town. Yeah. Like Venice. It's like the Venice in Texas. I'm not kidding. What's up? <laughs> hey, my stock is uh, TJ Maxx, TJX. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Ah, I like that stock very much, along with Raw Stores, uh, Burlington, Ollie's. There, let's, a couple of great ones, all right? And by the way, five. We're Chapel Trust us. I'm going to go to Kenneth in New York. Kenneth. Hey, Jim, this is Kenny from New York. I was wondering what your thoughts on IIPR. IIPR. Uh, you know what? This is another one of those that it's just, I don't really know what. Uh, you know, if, if, you know prologues if you want it. This is like it's got a cannabis angle. People are too excited about it. I got it. They're just too excited about it. Cannabis is exciting, but I like to invest in things that make me money. I want to go to Zach in Florida. Zach. Jim, a big blue nation. Booyah. All right. What's and going happy on? Happy anniversary to my wife. Today is my anniversary. Oh, happy, happy anniversary, anniversary Jessica. Uh, my stock, Kara, Kara Therapeutic. Well, it also happens to be Derek's uh, birthday on our staff, which is really pretty amazing. The, yeah, the coincidence is it incredible. All right, Kara, we like Kara. I know it's kind of installed here, uh, but I do like it very much, and I'm going to say stick with it. It's worth it. Uh, and I, it just was disturbing news here because I see Jack Bogle, one of my absolute heroes, passed away. He's a great man, father of the index fund. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. How do you determine when a stock has gotten too cheap? Who's the arbiter? The companies, that's who. The companies that buy other businesses at substantial premiums to where their stocks have been trading. These acquirers are now snapping up targets like mad because those targets saw their stocks collapse in the great bear market of 2018, also known as the pal pal bear market because Fed Chief Jay Powell hit stocks pow right in the kisser when he set out his plan for a series of lockstep rate hikes at the beginning of October. All these deals tell you the stocks got too cheap because of that. Case in point, this morning we woke up to the news that Fiserv is buying the stock of First Data in an all-stock transaction for $22.74 a share. Wow, huge win for First Data shareholders. Congratulations, as this was a $17 stock just yesterday. David Faber reported that these two financial companies have been talking off and on for months. Consider this, though. First data was trading at 26 bucks in September before the stock was felled by an earnings miss. I'm betting the top dogs at Pfizer probably love first data's credit merchandising business, but they didn't want to pay $32 a share for it, which would have been a reasonable price tag back then. Now they're paying 10 bucks less. No deal? Deal! Two days ago, Newmont Mining bought Gold Corp. GG and a stock for stock transaction valued at $10 billion, 17% premium to what Gold Corp had been trading over the pre- previous 20 days. The deal will be immediately additive to Newmont's earnings. But would it have been additive as much as it is if Gold Corp was trading at $14.19 where it peaked in July, not $9.69 where it got the bid? I don't think so. All right, how about Eli Louie's bid for Loxo Oncology? We talked about that one when we were at the J.P. Morgan conference. Louie's paying $235 per share, or $8 billion, to cement its role in the targeted cancer therapy space. Sure, it may seem excessive given, excessive given that Loxo traded $139 the week before. Woo! We're talking about a whopping 68% premium here. But back in July, Loxo traded $192. I'm sure Lily looked it over and passed based on how much it would have had to pay at the time. 
But Loxo's stock crashed from 192 to 139, and that was an opportunity for Lilly because it meant that this acquisition was suddenly affordable. Finally, there's Bristol Myers' purchase of Celgene for $102.43 a share. That's $74 billion. This gigantic deal is a textbook example exactly of what I'm talking about right now, right here. Sure, it seems like Bristol Myers is paying a big premium, right? Celgene was trading 66 bucks right before the bid. But wait a second. It's 66 bucks. Celgene stock was selling at an almost impossibly cheap six times earnings. This deal only works because the pow-pow bear market crushed the group, causing Celgene stock to plummet from 92 to 66. At these levels, the darn thing was just too cheap for Bristol-Myers not to buy it. And it was too cheap because biotech had fallen out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. Bristol-Myers doesn't care about the fashion show. It cares about earnings and new drugs in the pipeline. Celgene's got both, which is why this deal will be so beneficial to Bristol-Myers' shareholders. Now, we know from listening in on the bank, uh, Big Bang Conference calls that there are a lot more deals in the pipe. Again, that's because stocks got too mutilated. They're so cheap that opportunistic buyers would have to be crazy not to pounce. Deals that were simply unworkable because of price four months ago are now being done with alacrity. And you know what? I bet this merger mania is just getting started. Stick with Kramer. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. You know, as cheap as the bank stocks are, the really cheap ones are the regional banks that yield around 4%. And Morgan Stanley, which reports tomorrow, believe me, this group is just getting its momentum. If Goldman Sachs goes down from being up 17, that may be the cheapest of all. So don't be dissuaded just because they've moved. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. What is Decision Tech by Fidelity? It's technology that can help you find a stock based on what's trending or an investing goal. It's real-time insights and information delivered in your own customized view of the market. It's smarter trading technology for smarter trading decisions. And it's only from Fidelity. Open an account today at fidelity.com trading. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.